Thank you uh, to you guys. Appreciate you leading. Would you uh, turn in your Bibles, please? It's coming up on the screen shortly, but uh, just been reminded again of how precious this word is, and uh, it's a privilege to have, and uh, it's one of the things I, I've, I've done often is always try and carry a Bible with me, and um, it's amazing how often there's time to read it and also opportunity for it to speak. One of the things often in reading the scriptures and in, in preaching or in, you know, if you're reading it in quiet time or for, for inspiration, is, uh, is sometimes the, the challenge of, of cultural distance. That we know we're reading in a translation, it was this, particularly the New Testament was in Greek originally, that we know we're, we're separated by a lot of years and a lot of very different culture. Cultural distance makes a big difference. And so actually reading it and understanding it, when particularly in the letters, as, as I was talking about last week in the morning when we're reading uh, 1 Corinthians, we're, we're kind of hearing one side of a conversation and we're trying to understand what is being said and also why it's being said, into what context, what provoked or what is needing to be corrected or inspired or, or challenged. So there's, there's a kind of lot of dynamics going on. And part of our job is to read it honestly and carefully and, uh, and uh, try and do our best to understand that because it will help us and steer us in understanding. And, and I guess very often when we're preaching through First Peter and other parts of, of Scripture, it's really quite a challenge when it talks about persecution because that's not, for us, mainly as um, fairly privileged Westerners, most of us, that's not our lived experience right now. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, that we know and we've, we've, we, we pray for the persecuted church regularly and we have input from. This letter is written to the exiles, those scattered, those under an increasing pressure. But I just wonder whether the events of, of the last month or so and, and Corona, COVID-19, actually begins to help us get a new insight, a fresh perspective, a, an insight that we wouldn't naturally have found. What do I mean? Well, we're aware that we are subject to forces that we aren't in control with, of. Things are happening to us that we, we don't know. It's like a, a kind of ever-increasing pressure or storm that is affecting life. In the, the time of Peter and the early church, there were instructions coming from uh, Rome HQ, from the emperor, from the bureaucrats that were beginning to constrain liberty beginning to say you can't meet in big numbers. That those who are singled out, those who carry the mark, in, in this of being followers of Jesus, are socially ostracized. And those around them may say, well, let's just keep away from them. That 
I'm not saying that there was COVID-19, just to make it clear, in Peter. But we begin to see how we are beginning to feel. And maybe we're not in control of things. You begin to see, perhaps, some of the import and the magnitude and the power of what Peter writes. And in other places. But let chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 is our focus tonight. Remember, um, Philip dealt with one of the hardest passages in the Bible last week, and uh, I'm not going to go over that ground. He did an admirable job, and I was thankful the lot fell to him for that one about um, that bit. Therefore, since we, sorry, so therefore, since I was about to say we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, one of those good verses, uh, this is to Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their life, earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are unsurprised, sorry, they are surprised that you do not join them in their recklessness. Oh, sorry, read this properly. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And then the passage goes on about reminding us the end is near, and we'll come to that next time. Peter is... Speaking to the elect, the scattered, those who are living in a time of pressure. And again and again, in all the things that could be wise and could be significant and could be pragmatic, he again and again draws them back to Jesus. He, he doesn't dodge the bullet, but he centers Jesus most definitely. Essentially, he's saying, have confidence in Jesus Christ and his example. He's talked about how Jesus suffered, and through his suffering, as, as Philip uh, read in, in, um, in verse 18 of chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He keeps the central thing at the heart of who we are as a community of faith, and that is Jesus Christ. And we have confidence in his example. But he's, he's really honest. He says, in the fact that we confess Jesus, in the fact that we believe and trust in Jesus, in the truth that we are now in him and called to follow him, he writes at large, he says, that we will face challenges 
to our belief and behavior. In chapter 3, it's talked about kind of being ridiculed and also how, you know, people will outwardly ask us, why are you Christians? Have an, a previous prayer to give an answer in verse uh, 15. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, the hope that you have. That may not be a gentle inquiry. It may be like Peter, uh, the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest and trial. Aren't you one of those? <laughs> no, said Peter, denied. He's learned. He's seen the witness and the example of Jesus who died excruciating death on the cross and was buried yet rose and wonderfully reinstated Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. And Peter knew that it's centered around Christ. Be prepared, even when it singles us out. But chapter 4 moves on uh, away from kind of the question to that which is perhaps, well, it depends on your personality, but behavior. He focuses on and says, because of your uh, faith in Jesus and uh, looking with confidence, have the same attitude of that is Jesus, uh, of Jesus. But remember that our behavior matters. There's a sense here in which uh, it, it, there's a kind of clue that it's probable that he's writing to, to more of a Gentile background, to those who have being converted, born again, out of, of what we, we, we find here references, pagan background. He's, he's saying that you, you used to live in this cultural context, but now, as you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're now living in a new kingdom as, as, as strangers in this land, as sojourners. You're now exiles here and live in a new place, but you are dwelling in this land, in this culture that is becoming even more hostile to you. And he says, not only will there be the temptation to deny Jesus when people ask you to hedge your bets, to, to go undercover, but perhaps more profoundly, the challenge of what we do, do we go with the flow or do we stand out? Did you hear what he wrote? He said, verse 3, for you in the past have spent enough time, sorry, for you having, have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing. I wonder what carousing is. Sorry? Broad Street. I live in Broadway now. It's a danger, isn't it? Uh, joke. But notice he adds on the end here, not just those things, which are kind of fairly 21st century, I guess, and detestable idolatry. That as Christians, we're called to stand for Jesus, and that will be demonstrated by what we do, goes on in chapter 4 of how we live this out, but also what we don't do, what we don't opt into. And that's really tough. Christmas parties at the office. I'm not trying to make eye contact with anyone here. Uh, you might think I'm kind of driving a point home personally. No, that's not my intention. 
our family gatherings. I was um, at Russell's Fish and Chip Shop on Friday night. Took my godson there. Uh, he was over. And um, we were having a nice time. And it was full of the Cheltenham goers. And we were sitting there. We were having a nice conversation about university and how he's doing. And there was this bunch of 60-something gentlemen who'd obviously had a lovely time through their week. And they were sitting. There were no ladies on the table. Um, my godson said to me, he said, that guy's got porn on his phone. And I was like, I wasn't like, where? No, that would be the wrong reaction. I was like, and this guy was showing his mates his mobile phone with pornography on it. At Harper State in Russell's Fish Bar in Broadway. Again and again, I've um, been aware in, in working with um, young adults that that's an ever-pressing issue. going with the flow or standing out. The imagery that Paul is using is, is actually, um, it's kind of like that the people have jumped into the pool and are, sh- and are beckoning and said, come on, Christians, jump in with us, join in. And the Christians are faced with the choice of saying, shall I, shan't I? You see, society's pressure is overwhelming at times. And yet, uh, he doesn't just say, well, hide yourself away, lock the door, turn, uh, turn the lights off. He says, look to Jesus. Have confidence in him and his example. Verse 1, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Follow his Example. You know, we must be real with this, that it's tough standing out of the crowd. Verse 4 tells us that, that though they, they are surprised that you don't join them in recklessness, and they heap uh, abuse on you. I remember Linvoy Primus, I think he was the Portsmouth football player, talked about uh, he was a Christian, went to Portsmouth team, and they went on their Christmas outing, and it involved going to um, a, 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 a lap dancing club. And he said to them, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. And he didn't. And there was a lot, they, they all the team were like ganged together and said, oh, you know, you're holier than thou. Do you think you're better than us? Do you, you know, who do you think you are? Come on, aren't you part of the team? This is what we all do. Don't make such a fuss and all the different variations of that. And he said, no, thanks. And he knew that it was costly. Interesting, he said, the next year, quite a lot of them said, actually, we've got wives and girlfriends. We don't want to go there either. That that one stand actually reshaped a lot of the team. But I wonder if you've heard those phrases. Come on, everyone is. Are you holier than thou? Do you think you're better than Are you judging us? That could be really costly. I was, uh, I was uh, once... Um, uh, doing a bit of traveling, walking, trekking, and we came to uh, this major town on, on this trail, and it was the norm that those who were trekking in this part of Nepal had to go and present themselves to the Rinpoche, who was kind of like the lead Buddhist priest, meant to be an incarnate god. And the idea was you go and get a blessing from the Rinpoche for safety on your travels, and 
he obviously gives you a blessing when you give him some Nepalese rupees and uh, bids you a happy journey. And I knew this was coming up and I was with um, two non-Christians and two Christians and there were five of us. And I was like, I, I don't really want to have a blessing from this guy because actually I'm, I know that I'm in the blessing of God anyway. That he made these mountains and they can melt like wax before him, kind of big mountains inspire memories of Psalms. And so uh, I was kind of talking to my Christian friends there and they were like, no, it's, it's just nothing really. It's just cultural. And I just, just felt it wasn't right. So I sat on the wall outside the monastery for about 20 minutes and they went in and they passed by the Rinpoche and they came out a few rupees lighter. And I said, what happened? He said, well, it was a bit dull, really, a bit weird. And on we went. But it's amazing how making a stand makes you feel alone. With me sitting on that wall, thinking, have I done the right thing? But actually what made me not go in was actually I love Jesus. I don't want to compromise as far as I can any of my faith commitment and my trust in him. Peter writes to them and sees their suffering as a refusal to join in. He knows that for the culture of the day, their refusal to join in, and we see this in Corinth as, as we come to that in the morning, refusal to go with the cultural trends and the norms will mean people will ask us questions, chapter 3, and be prepared to give an answer. Not to say, oh, it's about Jesus, but also to recognize that as we live for Jesus and we don't go with the flow, we may have abuse piled upon us. And the reality is it'd be easy to join in, wouldn't it? It'd be just so much easier. It'd spare a whole lot. I mean, just think of it. We ask our teenagers at school to, to make a difference, and we know that some of the teenagers get ridiculed by the teachers. Talking to my godson, I'd say, I was encouraging him to stand out at uni, and, and he was saying, yeah, but what about all the clubbing and the, the pre-drinks? Stand out, I said. It's not easy. No one loves sticking their head above a parapet. Why? Because you get shot at. You become the target. But this is where the gospel matters. It's not just in here, but of who and how we live. If they didn't stand out, Peter writes, no one would speak against them. He says, consider Jesus. Adopt and dwell upon. Have the same attitude as that of Jesus. Be prepared to suffer in that battle for sin. Why? Because we know that actually living for Christ, living in Jesus, establishes and brings fullness of life. Even fullness when it's opposed. Think of it like this. Why did Jesus suffer? 
Why did he go to the cross? Why wasn't there another way? Couldn't he have accomplished what he did by a simpler route? Did it really need him to sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane and say, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done? The way conquering that was through the pain of suffering, agony, and dying on the cross. Yet, as Peter has already written in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He did that because he knew that by entering into that, he would set us free. That there was no other way. There was no other way. There was no other shortcut. There was no ducking beneath the parapet. There was no other way that he could do this or bring rescue and redemption and freedom and victory other than by confronting this head on and saying, this is the way it is costly and I will be singled out and I will be killed alone in order to win. Sisters and brothers, dwell upon that. When we're faced in the coming days with choices, the Jesus way or the world's way. Not to say that everything in the world is bad, no. If you're not sure, ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your conscience. Or ask one of, a, one of those who's walked with Jesus a little bit more and say, how does this fit? Is this good? A wise or unwise. Someone I, I found really helpful uh, pictured it like this. Imagine that you are a homeowner and you've, you've moved into this uh, property and it's got this, this garden, but the garden is full of weeds and brambles that it's kind of like choked all over with these uh, unpleasant, stinging, thorny brambles. What are the two options? Well, firstly, you could be content with having a garden of briars and say, I'll just leave it be. Or you could know that that which is full of mess isn't actually the purpose of a garden. It could be something very different. Faced with two choices, live amongst the, uh, the, kind of the, the, the weeds and the choked and the brambles. Or see it for what it could be. How do you move from one to the other? You get in there with your desire to rid the garden of the weeds and start to change it. And you know that as you start to get engaged, it's not all going to be plain sailing. There's going to be scratches and stings. But that is put up with because you know what it shall be like and the desire to see that come. The Peter says to the believers who are suffering, who are being scratched and stung because 
of their willingness to stand out for Jesus, to be associated, to stand alongside Jesus, to be counted as his, not to go under the radar and be clandestine or undercover and camouflaged, but to say, here we are. That their experience of suffering is the sign of being done with sin. I'm no longer being content with the spikes and the thorns and the stings. But of contending and looking towards the new. Lest we be discouraged, Peter writes towards the end of of this small passage, verse 6, for this reason the gospel was preached, even those who are now dead. Let's not jump too back to, to chapter 13. I don't think he's going to preach the imprisoned spirits here. I think this is a reference to those for whom the gospel has come and who've died, I think, in the kind of natural order of things. But the gospel was preached to them and that they too will be judged. It's an encouragement to those Christians who are, being, who are saved and yet who are struggling to know that they haven't got away with it. Death hasn't let them off the hook. The evil won't prosper and prevail. To stand for the right. Let me illustrate this with a few examples from our modern history and a bit from church history. You know that amazing um, statement by Simon Wiesenthal? The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men, women, do nothing. You've heard that? I think Peter's in his own way driving at that. If Christian salt and light don't stand up and be Christ's people, The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for us to do nothing. Martin Niemöller, a German Lutheran pastor, and again, you'll have heard this either in history or if it's the first time, I hope you're inspired. He was for Hitler initially, but then became disillusioned. He became uh, the leader of a group of uh, German uh, clergymen opposed to Hitler. In 1937, he was arrested and eventually confined into Dachau. He was released in 1945 by the Allies. And he became and continued as a, as a, a leader of the church and a leading voice in reconciliation after the Second World War. He phrased it like this, about the imperative for Christians. He said, first they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and I didn't speak out. Sorry, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. We have a voice and a presence and an implicit power. Did you hear it? Because we live according to God 
in our spirit. Martin Luther King said, even if they try to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And if a person has not found something to die for, that person isn't fit to live. He goes on and says, crowds, pressures have unconsciously conditioned our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo. Go with the flow. Many voices and forces urge us to choose the path of least resistance and bid us never fight for an unpopular cause and never to be found in a minority of two or three. Gandhi, in his passive resistance, in facing up to the control and the domination of the British Empire, based his methods on the person and, and work of Jesus. And of this method, he said, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. I don't think Peter is wanting to cause fear or cause the Christians that he is writing to, our sisters and brothers in that early age, to shrink back. But they know this. He urges them in their time and through history with even the cultural differences to us in our time to have the same attitude as that of Jesus Consider what he accomplished of the motivation and the extraordinary victory of which we live in the resonance and the power of now. To know that we will be questioned and opposed. Peter had had experienced it himself. He'd been restored. uh, And then they started preaching in Jerusalem uh, on on that Pentecost day. And the people, the religious, the society stood against them and said, you should not do this. We forbid it. What did they do? They immediately cried out to God. They gathered with people and said, oh Lord, they pray, hear their threats. Did they stop? Not at all. They carried on speaking and preaching and praying and the kingdom advanced. Jesus wasn't crucified for being a good person, for being just a little nicer than everyone else. See, what Peter is driving at, what the gospel gets hold of is this in Jesus Christ. The powers of the day correctly saw him and his followers as subversives because we live for Jesus, not for the powers of this world. For the early church, it was persecution. For us, there's still that choice of standing for him or complying to someone else. Came across this, uh, grateful for um, 
Ron Boyd McMillan, he, he used this in a talk that we, we heard. He, he spoke of the great historian of mission, Kenneth Scott LaTourette, who gets, gets the great paradox of persecution uh, correct in this wonderful sentence. He said, in this world, the church's complete triumph is never assured. In some areas, grave reverses will be met. In all areas, the church will be confronted by foes. That's us. Not the foes, the church. Yet, there is that in human nature which will always be antagonized by Jesus. Yet, in human nature, there is always that which responds to him. People everywhere and of every race are both repelled and attracted. Always, there will be those who seek to crucify Jesus. But always where he is seen, he will win followers. In these followers... He will be reincarnated, even though never perfectly. Here and there, the crucifiers will kill off his followers. Somewhere, however, followers will survive. From these survivors, Jesus will again be carried to the lands from which he has been driven. Into the offices and the schools and our neighborhoods. Let's pray.